This is Sarah Stewart-Holland. And this is Beth Silvers. Thank you for joining us for Pantsuit Politics. Thank you for joining us for a new episode of Pantsuit Politics, where we take a different approach to the news. Today, we're stepping back to look at a trend that undoubtedly impacts politics from a different posture than our default. It's no secret that religion is a force in politics. It impacts elections, puts pressure on candidates, it shapes relationships. Sarah and I have spent a lot of time talking about religion and politics over the years, and we've had people like Kristen Dumay and Lisa Sharon Harper and David French join us for those discussions. Those guests mirror our personal experiences in a sense we are all deeply connected to faith communities. Today, we want to talk to people who aren't, the so-called religious nuns, N-O-N-E-S, people who are interested in living lives of meaning and purpose and having relationships with others, who want lots of the good that Sarah and I would call out as accompanying church attendance, but with none of the substantial baggage that many people find in religion. We have two fantastic guests to help us think about the religious nuns today, Jessica Gross, and Vanessa Zoltan. As this episode releases, Sarah and I are in Mississippi for a speaking engagement that focuses on advocacy across party lines for issues that impact our physical health. We love meeting people doing important work in their communities, and we love meeting those communities where they are. We know that conversations across party lines and even within parties are tough right now. If we can bring our years of communications experience and expertise to your community or organization, please reach out to our managing director, Elise. All the information you need to do that will be in this episode's show notes and on our website, pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsuit Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from 
frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. As we begin thinking about the large, growing group of people who do not associate with any religion, we are thrilled to be in conversation with Jessica Gross, an opinion writer at The New York Times. She recently wrote a series based on her reporting about the religious nuns, and we loved talking with Jessica about that reporting and her own experiences. Jessica, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, in April of this year, you asked your readers a deceptively simple question. Are you someone who has moved away from religion? And you got over 7,000 responses and have been writing about what you learned over a series about religious nuns. Now, important, you talk about this a lot. Not N-U-N. N-O-N-E-S. <laughs> religious nuns. Tell us how this series and this question and this survey came about. So before that series, I had been reporting this big piece about millennials at midlife because Basically, like I had turned 40 and I was like, this does not feel like the stereotype of what midlife looked like that you see in pop culture. And so I started looking at how midlife was really different for, you know, people who are turning 40 now compared to their parents. So boomers and the silent generation. And one big change over that, let's say, 40, 50 year period that I did not get into in that big piece, but I noticed was that there was a massive decline in religious observance. So church going, but also people saying that they aligned themselves with a particular religion. I was like, this is interesting and sort of filed it away for later. And then that piece came out, I believe in February. And in April, the Wall Street Journal had a big poll where they were polling people about their attitudes about a variety of things. And the number of people who said they thought religion was very important in their lives had dropped kind of dramatically just over the course of a couple of years. And so I was like, okay, this is a signal to me that this is a trend that is continuing to pick up steam. And so I started reading about it. And around 20 to 30% of Americans now say that they have no religion. And so the sociologists, as you said, call them nuns, N-O-N-E-S. But when you start reading about nuns, it really is an umbrella group. These people are completely heterogeneous. They're very different from each Mm other. Um, They have a variety of beliefs. A lot of them still believe in God. A lot of them still perform rituals of the, you know, religion that they were raised in. But for a variety of reasons, they no longer affiliate with the religion that they were raised in. And then there is another sort of subset of that group of people who say that they are agnostic or atheist, which in and of itself is, you know, a fairly strong belief system. It is not a religious belief system, but it's a 
coherent worldview. And so those people are even different than the people who say they have no religion, um, but may, you know, go to church sometimes and still believe in God. So I felt that a lot of the statistics, which a lot of the news reporting just talked about the statistics and said, you know, the number of nuns is on the rise. But I felt that that didn't really peel back the top layer and look at all of the reasons that people had moved away from religion over time and how they really felt about it. Because your faith is one of the most deep and intimate aspects of your identity. And everyone's is so particular and their stories are so particular. And I am so nosy. (laughs) I mean, I could have reported this piece for a year because I just loved talking to people so much about their lives. I mean, it just the way it was so intimately braided into kind of everything that had happened to them in their lives. And it just really like, it was so moving um, to have all of these conversations. And I was really, you know, completely blown away by the response we had. So we had over 7,000 responses in a 24 hour period. Oh, we had to close the survey. Usually we hold, we just keep the surveys open to just see like, oh, you know, more people will, maybe we'll find it. I've never seen anything like this in all the surveys I've done at the times. We closed it because I was like, I could not go through all of these, you know, really heartfelt responses myself. I had some really amazing audience people who are helping me, but, you know, they have 18 other things to do every day. So I would have loved to, you know, keep it open and just have even more responses. But uh, clearly this is something that people are experiencing. They feel they don't have a space to talk about it in their Mm -hmm. day-to-day lives, I think, because it is so intimate. Well, I've loved your reporting because it seems to me that the story being told about religion primarily in media for the past few years has been mostly about evangelicals as a cultural and political block and what that means for evangelicalism as a faith and then ex-evangelicalism, right? But I loved that you took a much more nuanced lens on the whole picture that you talked about people of different faiths and within people of faith, is your worldview primarily secular, but you have a faith or is your worldview primarily religious and what's your relationship to secularism? I just wonder, what are the stories that are being missed? Like, what do you think are some big categories of stories that aren't being told when the evangelicalism takes up all of the oxygen in the room? I know this sounds maybe silly, but I think how busy people have to be in their day-to-day lives now and the pace of life now as compared to the pace of life 40 or 50 years ago, because what I heard, and this didn't even make it into the series because there just was, there were so many stories to be told. But I think one reason we see less church going, less community, you know, organizing even outside of religion is people are working so many hours. Their kids have so many more responsibilities and there simply is not time in the day. And certainly, you know, the scholars I talked to about this would always say, well, it's a statement that they're not making a priority. If it really was important, they would make it a priority. And it's like, I think that's true to an extent. Mm -hmm. And clearly lots of people still are, are observant and still, you know, make the time for church. But I do think that they're is a layer of people for whom there just isn't space in their life to have this sort of spiritual moment. And I did talk to one woman, I think she did make it into the piece, who she stopped going to church because she started working Sunday. Yeah, I read that one. 
yeah, she would get time and a half for working Sundays. And so I have no dog in this fight. I don't say it's good or it's bad for people to to go to church or not go to church. I think it's complicated and personal for kind of everybody. But um, for people who do find solace and and enjoyment and and meaning and just simply can't go because they're working so much and their caretaking responsibilities are so intense, I think that's just really important to talk about. And I think in an ideal world, there would be a way for them to worship regularly and have more leisure time in their life. That's what I think. You know, so much of that is tied up with Sabbath and rest. And when we started passing laws that said you can stay open on Sunday, well, that means somebody has to work on Sunday or Saturday. You know, Sabbaths are different. We don't have a culture that emphasizes rest and reflection. No. And I think that that came through a lot. That's what I really appreciated about your piece, because I think the narrative or your series even is that for so long, I think, especially surrounding millennials, it just became that, like, I felt like what I heard and even what I subscribed to for a long time, which was that just, you know, subscribing to religion or being religious was unsophisticated and mm-hmm. anti-intellectual. And so I really appreciated how you you peeled that back and said, yes, that's some of how people feel. Of course, that's some of where people are coming from. But this is much more complicated. And I truly appreciated that you named that some people missed it. And like it was there were barriers and it wasn't easily substituted with a book club or a yoga class, that there was something very different happening in a in a religious institution that people were missing. You know, even in my own community that is highly religious, like this has been a big deal even in the last couple of years. Up until when, I would say before the pandemic, in my community, you did not schedule anything. And it's, I live in Kentucky, sports are a big deal. But you did not schedule things on Wednesday night because people took their kids to church on Wednesday night, Wednesday night mm-hmm. and Sunday. And just in the last few years, I would say since the pandemic, that's even changed in my community. And it's like, it's a big deal because when they're scheduling conflicts and when people are investing a lot of money in kids' activities or you have to work or you get time and a half, yeah, there's a prioritization, but it's just a, it's a, it's a cultural prioritization that's happening that you're yes. fighting. And it's, yeah, you can individually prioritize it, but when that is coming up against a cultural prioritization, I think that's really, really difficult. Yeah. I think part of the reason I was able to come at it in the way that I did is because I'm Jewish. And so we are sort of like this other thing since we're an ethno religion. And so many people will say that, you know, I deeply identify as being Jewish and I haven't stepped foot in a temple in 40 years. Right. Mm -hmm. And so there's never sort of a conflict between, you know, especially in reform Judaism you don't even have to believe in God. They're never going to ask you. They're never going to ask you what you believe or don't believe you can, as long as you, you know, have the lineage, you can just show up. And it's like, you're encouraged to question too. It's, a, right. it's, it's sort of baked into the religion. So I think it allowed me to come at other people's experiences with, with just a completely open mind because my religious background is so like, you know, you're supposed to question everything and you don't have to pass some sort of litmus test. Um, and it is, the sort of intellectual tradition that goes along with it is so deeply part of it. So I never had a feeling like you couldn't be sophisticated and intellectual. There was never a conflict with religiosity and intellectuality. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that you call out that there is a coherent worldview surrounding atheism and agnosticism because 
Some of the people who are most strident in their ethical codes who I know are atheists. I think mm-hmm. when you have that worldview, it makes the present extremely important and you have a really sincere set of ethical precepts and you believe that they have immediate consequences and it's it's a completely different orientation uh, than someone like me who's who's just grown up as a Christian and and there's this other bigger picture at work all the time that gives you a little bit more wiggle room than you than I see in my friends who who are sincere atheists. I wonder with the nuns if you think that group sort of rejects that coherence or if it really is just a a factor of I don't have space in my life to to ponder these these big questions right now or is it kind of all over the place? It's all over the place. So it's it sort of encompasses all of that. It encompasses people who are incredibly deep conflict. So I I mean some of the most interesting conversations I had were with people who had observed many different religions mm. over the period of their adult life. So they had tried Christianity, they had tried Islam, they had tried, you know, a general spirituality, things that didn't align with like a traditional religious observance. And they were seekers, but they never found something they felt really suited them. And so it sort of encompasses those people. It encompasses people who just like, don't think about it. Mm-hmm. I always try to remind myself and my colleagues in news that we are biased by being constantly surrounded by, by people who really care so deeply about news and politics, where it's yep. like a lot of people just don't think about it day to day. Yes, most people don't. And so it's like always good to be reminded. It's just like, yes, these questions are really moving and enlightening to me, but like it doesn't set everybody on fire. Like that's their life. So that definitely encompasses those people who just like, you know, I don't really think about it. But it also sort of includes people who have had really horrible experiences in the religion of their youth um, for just such a wide variety of reasons. And, you know, they find real comfort in rejecting this thing that has, you know, obviously the people who who spoke about this the most were people in the LGBT community who were raised in religions that did not accept that. And that's a huge rift, not just, you know, feeling rejected by this community that you expected to give you sort of unconditional love, but but sometimes also by your family members. And so, you know, I really, I, I think there's no way not to just take that so seriously and, and really understand uh, absolutely where that's coming from. So it just, it encompassed so many different kinds of people. Well, it's so interesting to me because you sort of just described my own church congregations. <laughs> there are people, you know, we're affirming congregations. So we have members of the LGBT community who left other congregations. We have questioners. We have people who are just devout. They're highly religious. We have people who are skeptics. Like, And to me, like that's what's the thing that people name that they're missing, that, that sense of like, we're all in this. There's something that draws us together that I loved where you named like, Somebody who will show up if there's a death in your family, who will bring a casserole to your house, who is committed to you and your family and this community in a deeper way. And, you know, it's so interesting to me that you name that news and politics as we were talking about this, too, that there does seem to be this interesting confluence between the the religious nuns and I would call like the news and politics nuns like that. The like, no, like I don't. I don't know if it's we we are 
sort of solidifying this narrative around institutions. I think that's what I really loved about your piece is I felt like in just instead of doing one more people distrust institutions and they're t- turning from institutions, this was like, but can we scratch at that? Can we dig deeper? What's underneath that? Because I think we've, you know, adequately named the problem at this point. And we right. know that there are some problems and that's people's needs aren't met and that communities are suffering and that certain demographics are suffering. So like, if we want to rebuild the institutions, reformulate our priorities individually and as communities, like we got to start, we got to start scratching that more than people just distrust the government or people just distrust religion. And there's just a generalized distrust of institutions because I, I'm assuming we want to continue with a society that does, in theory, contain institutions. So what are we going to do about it? <laughs> right. I had some really wonderful conversations with sort of sociologists who are also pastors. Mm. So they're coming at it with like, people not going to church is bad, which is obviously not my point of view, but it's their point of view. And I respect that. And the point that they made often was that the first thing we need to do is actually make our houses of worship welcoming to people who don't follow what sociologists call the success sequence. So Mm. the success sequence is you, you know, graduate high school, you go to college, you get a steady job, you get married, you have kids. And, you know, more and more, I think the people who do not fit that narrow success sequence feel alienated from all institutions. So not, not just religion. And so of all institutions, religion, you know, the whole point is to help people who are less fortunate. Like that's the core of most of yep. <laughs> like hopefully Some that is the core. Some consistent yeah. threads there. Yeah. And so I think, you know, something that I did mention and that was brought up is the cost of being part of a church community. It shouldn't be expensive to pay dues to worship. And I talked to pastors who are not doing this sort of studying, but are out in the you know field trying to do good. And one of them uh, talked about sort of really trying to meet people in his community where they were. So what does that mean? Sometimes it, during COVID, it meant ha- they, I mean, they were in Florida, so it was easier to do this, um, having services outside just constantly and actually still having more services outside than they used to, because, you know, we can't do it inside, but we think meeting together is an important thing. So we're we're changing it up. And then another thing he talked about was getting together with different faith leaders in his community. So all different faiths and doing community service projects all together. Listen, I love an interfaith gathering. Yes. So I think part of the issue is saying the way things that we we used to do things, people are not no longer responding to. So there must be something wrong with the people. I think twisting that and saying like, how do we change the way that we're doing things so that we reach these people who want to be reached? Not like, I mean, I still, to this day, my mother is still angry that someone came to proselytize at our house on Yom Kippur. This was in like 1992. She is still angry well, about it. Well, I'm a little, <laughs> I agree with her. Yeah, I get that. Yeah, so it's like not trying to reach people who don't want to be reached. Like, we're not talking about that. I think that success sequence, like, I think if somebody said our institutions are struggling because they were built around this success sequence and our culture and our society is more diverse and complex and we need to respond to that. That seems like an advancement in the conversation to me. 
Yeah, well, I hope so. Um, but I, I really appreciated his perspective. And he was talking about his own son. You know, he was saying, my son, who's in his 20s, he might not always come to church on Sundays, but I know that he sits in a coffee shop and he reads scripture on his phone. So like, why should I be angry about that? Like, is it is it having these messages that I value reach my children or is it having it look exactly like it's looked for, you know, 150 years? I think different denominations will have different answers to that. And I think some are saying it has to be the way it always has been. And we are okay with having a smaller congregation. And that's their right. That is good luck with that. But that you're right. That's their right. <laughs> that's their right. Um, but I think a lot of other faith leaders are saying like, okay, how can we be- meet people where they are? Are the nuns comprised demographically of a, a large group of people on the success sequence? Because I mean, oh yeah, that's what I see like, in my life, <laughs> you know? So every single demographic has left religion. Wow. Every single one. Every racial, ethnic, religious, yeah. literally everybody. So like it is slightly overrepresented among people who are not in the success sequence who are nuns, but like no. It is across the board. And I think that's probably true of the news and politics nuns as well, not for nothing. I think so too. And I asked the question because one thing that I observe is a real sense of when you talk about the cost of attending church. So I feel the pressure as a success sequence person of keeping the church going Mm -hmm. so that we can do that ministry to everyone else. There is a cost to me and there should be because I am here to be part of that ministry to people who have less. Mm -hmm. But I don't see a lot of people on the success sequence in my demographic strata that are up for having a cost of the investment of time and money that it takes to keep these things running Mm -hmm. uh, because they're creating the success sequence for their kids. They're so heavily invested in what that means for their kids. Y'all, is this success sequence a scam for real? (laughs) Is this what we've hit upon? If it is distracting us from the larger purposes of being here, then yes, I mm-hmm. think it is. Um, yeah. But I, but I'm just, I'm really struck by like, okay, faith is intimate and core and people are longing to talk about it. But also we all want to do that without any sense of commitment. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly what I was going to ask. Not because we're commitment phobic, but because we can't figure out where another commitment goes for us. Am I getting it? I think the success sequence, even if you're in it or outside of it, trains you that this is like everything, every institution is transactional. Everything yeah. like, yes, we want people to, to I, we, we talked about this with dress codes. Like, where's the balance between, yes, we want you to find your authentic individual journey and also you are part of a whole. I, it's, yeah. I, we don't do that balance very well. We really don't. And I, you know, I am definitely part of the problem. Like, I'm just, I am, I'm just tired. <laughs> like, I'm tired <laughs> all the time. And, you know, my husband and I both work full time. And it's like, I think what our employers ask of us is more hours and more commitment than, you know, 30, 40 years ago. What the schools ask of us, like the other institutions, I think, have become greedy in terms of the time commitment that they are asking for. And so it at some point, something has to give. 
And if something feels more optional, I think, you know, people are going to not want to do it. And so, you know, I don't, that's not to excuse all of it because I think, you know, we should all be giving back as much as we possibly can. But like, I think especially when you have young kids, there are truly only so many hours in the day. And I think most families now have to have two working parents to make ends meet. And I'm certainly not arguing to go back to the days of like, you know, everybody has to have one parent stay home because I think that's not what most people want anymore. It's certainly not what I want. But I do think like we need to insert some some more sanity in terms of our work hours, our, you know, extracurricular commitments that our kids have when they're little, little, you know, it just we don't have to do it. No, we don't have to do it. <laughs> we don't have to do it. Oh. I mean, some days I feel like I shouldn't have to do any of it. <laughs> <laughs> but I still do. I just don't want to, but I do it. You know, there's no choice. Yeah. So we talk a lot politically, Sarah and I, about what is effective as to the people who don't like politics. Yeah. Because we're a democracy. We need everybody <laughs> like to some extent. And to be persuasive, especially in an election, it is important to say here, here person who wants out of all this this is how I convince you to be a part, at least in some way, or this is how you can feel supported by all this, or this is what this means to you. So culturally, what did you learn about the nuns that would allow those of us who are deeply interested in our faith communities not to recruit them, but just to more effectively live together, support each other, understand each other? I mean, so I think a thread that connects the politics and the religion and honestly, public health too, That's what is that shame, you read shaming, <laughs> shaming people doesn't work. Shaming people just makes them angry. Yep. Uh, it makes them hate you more. It makes you immediately turn off whatever the message is. And so we see this across like everything. Mm -hmm. If we're saying, you know, in politics, if it's like, well, you don't, pass the litmus test for absolutely every topic that I insist that you pass. And so you can't sit with us. Well, yep. that's not very effective coalition building. Like at some point, yes, you have to draw the line of, you know, like if you're, you know, super pro-life and that's your number one issue, like we may not find compatibility, but like beyond those like very black and white things, which like there actually aren't that many, I think shaming people, making the tent smaller, just it's never any study I have ever seen says that it does work, not work. And I think about it in religion and also public health. It's like, you know, I've done a lot of reporting about uh, anti-vaccine and there is only actually a very small percent of people who are hardcore, unreachable, will never vaccinate a child there. And you you should actually stop trying to reach them who you need to talk to are people who are skeptical. They maybe had a really bad experience. Um, I'm talking about parents here because usually that's the, you know, the, they're the ones who encounter vaccines the most. Um, they had a horrible experience giving birth. They felt totally unheard by their medical team and they just became totally skeptical of anything that any doctor was telling them. And so saying like, you're a horrible person for not vaccinating your child. Well, that's not going to actually get them to vaccinate their child or to understand like, hey, 
I understand that you had this horrible experience that you shouldn't have had. And here's why, you know, I still think you should consider vaccinating your child. It's not like you're a monster and I won't ever talk to you again. Like that's just, it doesn't work. Yep. It's very unusual for that to work on anybody. Um, and I think the same goes for religion. Like so many people responded to my survey and said that they left religion because they got divorced and their church made them feel like they were, well, either said you can't come back. I mean, obviously there are some churches that are very hard line, but even the ones that would allow them just made them feel so ashamed. They're just like, well, I'm divorced. Like, what am I going to do? So like, again, I think there's connections with all this shaming people doesn't work. You want a welcoming, encouraging, open scenario. Well, and I think you just see so many threads between like the experience inside the medical institution, wellness to anti-vax pipeline, the experience inside politics or government to the like, you know, either direction, hardline extremes. Same with religion. You know, some of the some of the most like sort of I don't want to say zealot, but like the hardliners are people who have left religion uh, that I've met that like adopting the politics as their new religion. And it's like because when we do when we when we behave like that as we leave or question or critique institutions, I just feel like then it becomes and I've been this person. It became my whole entire personality for 10 years being the anti person. Right. And then and then we all wonder why we're lonely because we create these impossible standards that no institution, much less any person inside the institution, can meet. And then we're just at each other all the time. And I think that that you just you can see you can see those threads of shame and, you know, sort of um, people doubling down and creating entire personalities around ideas around medicine or politics or education or religion and then just pushing everyone else away. I mean, we did a survey for our second book, Now What? It was really, it caught both of us off guard how many people answered our surveys about what makes you feel disconnected. How many people answered, like, I can't talk about what matters to me because I'm afraid of people's reaction or they shut me down. And so mm-hmm. it was like the the pushing out of conflict, that sort of zero tolerance of any disagreement just yeah. makes people feel so lonely and unheard and disconnected. And it was just a very yeah. church, marriage, family, work, you name it. They said, we can't talk about the ways we disagree. We can't talk about the hard things because everyone's so like the stakes are high. And so everybody shuts everybody else down. And so I'd feel so disconnected, like nobody really cares what I think. Mm, that's so interesting and sad. It is sad. It is sad. And I think we all want a path forward. And so I think we have to start saying, like, what is lost when we leave these institutions? Where can there be improvement? Or can we Mm -hmm. what if we're building a new way, if we're thinking about new ways to meet these needs and we need to be really honest about what the needs are? Absolutely. I think that's spot on. And I think, yeah, just feeling open to disagreement and some conflict and, you know, getting to the other side. Well, Jessica, that is what we love and respect about your work. She doesn't just write about religious sense. When you were talking about turning for, obviously we are millennials and we turned 40. (laughs) What what year are you born? 82. 82. We're 1981. (laughs) And so when you were just saying all these things, I was like, oh, that's why everything you write, I'm like, yes, Jessica, 
Tell me more, please. Daycares, <laughs> education, the sleep yeah. deprivation unduly sheltered by women. Yes, I would like to read a thousand words about that. Thank you so much for coming on Pansy Politics. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. We're so grateful for Jessica's work and vulnerability in this conversation. You can find more of her writing at The New York Times and in her books, Screaming on the Inside, The Unsustainability of American Motherhood, and her two novels, Soulmates and Sad Desk Salad. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and June has you covered. We've talked about Olive and June's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things. Big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, 
com slash pansy. Vanessa Zoltan helps us add even more layers to this conversation. Vanessa is the author of Praying with Jane Eyre, in which she beautifully and profoundly offers up sermons from her scholarship and her perspective as an atheist Jew trained as a non-denominational chaplain at Harvard Divinity School. Vanessa Zoltan, I'm so delighted to have you with us. I have been a big fan of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text for a long time. So tell us about the inspiration to take the practice that you've been demonstrating on your podcast and put it in the form of a book? Oh, that's such a nice question. So I first had to write about treating texts as sacred. So Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is actually based on my master's thesis. I got my master's degree from Harvard Divinity School and was training to be a non-denominational chaplain. And so I was really interested through my chaplaincy in developing a way to talk to people who are secular or don't know what religion they are, spiritual but not religious. I was working in hospitals and prisons, and there's something really special about talking to people about things that they find sacred, whether it was baseball or their relationships with their kids or art. And so I was really trying to codify what that practice would look like as a chaplain, if I go into a room, a hospital room, and someone is sick, and I go, hi, I'm here from the spiritual care department, and I've seen in their chart that they have put that they're unaffiliated with a religion, what is my way in? And so that is really what my initial work was about. And then I sort of developed with my mentor, Stephanie Paulsell, a methodology for that. And that is what Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is based on, is the methodology I developed for that time with her and for my chaplaincy. And so it started as writing. And then I wanted to, I wanted to prove that it worked, you know? And, and so the book is really just me trying to prove that it works, that you can treat a secular things as, as if it was sacred and be like, look, you can reflect on anything in your own life. Like try this at home, journal, be like, I'm thinking about heartbreak and Taylor Swift is how I always think about heartbreak. <sighs> So I'm going to pull, I'm sorry, but I'm going to pull a Taylor Swift lyric, like Mm -hmm. she had a marvelous time ruining everything, and I'm going to just journal on it and like figure out how I feel about it using a text that's sacred to me. I love the origin story with Casper, who's been on our podcast before when he said, how about we do this with a book that people read? Yeah, no, he's a jerk. Which was rude. That's rude. It's real rude. Uh, That's how people talk about Jane Austen, which is one of my sacred texts. And I get real feisty about it. So I was treating Jane Eyre as sacred. And he came to this little group and he was like, so smart. I'm so proud of you. But what if we do it with a book people actually like? Instead of with that cute accent, they can be mad. I know. And then he was right that more people read Harry Potter. And that there's something special about the ubiquity of Harry I mean, Potter. That is a that's a hell of a text too. In yeah. fairness, but I think you're right. It doesn't ha- it doesn't have to be a seven part, several thousand page. The, I mean, I think the beginning of this treatment that you have codified, as you so eloquently put it, is the the first fun part is just to think through your life, the things you've treated as a sacred text, and didn't yes. realize it. 
Like, still Magnolias is a sacred text to me. <gasps> me Probably. too! Listen, if I sat here long enough, I could quote the whole movie to you. Give me, me some too. time. It might take me a minute. I couldn't do it in the runtime of the movie, but I could do it if, if given if enough If you don't have anything nice to say, come sit by me. Come sit by me. Well, and like, listen, you know, to, to I'm going to start crying already, to have treated this text in a sacred manner, to, 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 to bring it into myself, right? Like, it's in my, that movie's in my cells. Mm-hmm. And then to have a child diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. Like, that's oh like... Oh, my God. That's some real moving pieces. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And that's when you realize, oh, this is a... Li- this When you treat something like this, it's living. Then you see other layers of it. And I think that's what you do so well in this book is articulate that... I think when you, when you talk about using something secular as sacred, it's just hard to get out of that intellectual space where you're where you think you're criticizing or analyzing that. And right. I even still do that. And so to watch you walk through Jane Eyre and show that I'm not I'm not talking about Jane Eyre. I'm talking about my life. I'm mm-hmm. using Jane Eyre to talk about my grandparents' experience in the Holocaust. I'm using Jane Eyre to talk about my experience with mental illness. Like I'm using this text because it has depth to explore my own depths. And I just right. think it's incredible. Yeah, the way my professor, Charles Hallis, he would say that is we're using it to learn from and not about. Mm-hmm. I love that. I underlined that part. Yeah, it's it's so good. He's so <laughs> smart. Yeah, I want to learn from it, how to be a good person, how I want to walk through the world. You know, do I want to be like Sally Fields and Steel Magnolia? And, you know, do I want to let go more? And like no judgment, right? Like we have these fictional characters who we can live our lives in conversation with. And um, we are allowed to, it's like one of those touch me museums, right? Where you're just like allowed Mm -hmm. to pick it up and look at it from every direction and you're not judging, you're thinking critically because these aren't real people who are going to get hurt by you judging them. And you actually do know everything about them that has been created because they are fictional. And so they're, yeah, you're just like really invited into it. And if it doesn't suit you, if it doesn't work for you, if it doesn't get you better at loving, then throw it out. Mm. I've been staring at a post-it note on my desk all week. My friend Anna quoted Krista Tippett in her newsletter Mm -hmm. saying, if you are faithful to a question, the question will be faithful to you. Mm -hmm. And as I am reading your book, you have really fleshed out what being faithful to a question means, I think. So will you talk a little bit about what bringing, as an atheist, what bringing faith to this exercise means to you? Yeah. So... First of all, I talk about faith as an act and not a thing, right? You don't either have faith or don't have faith. You act with faith. And Simone Weil, who was a, you know, 20th century French philosopher, she she talked about love and faith as like very related and that they had a lot to do with attention, which I think is like very similar to that Christopher Tippett quote, right? And that paying attention to something is loving it and is having faith in it. And so she would talk about, she has this great, great essay that's super readable, not just for a philosophical essay, but just for any essay called On the Right Use of School Studies. And she talks about treating studying Greek or doing your chemistry homework or anything as if it was sacred because it's going to get you better at paying attention. And then it becomes sacred, right? And I I think that that's a dangerous idea because you don't want to be like, oh, I'm in a really bad relationship. But if I treat it as sacred and if I have faith in it, then it'll be good. Most good ideas are dangerous in the wrong light. Exactly. So we ought to be really careful and ask ourselves, is this getting us better at loving, including loving ourselves? But as long as it sort of meets that criteria, I think that having faith means that you believe 
that it has gifts to give you. And that's it. Like, that's what it means to have faith in something. And that doesn't mean that it has the right gifts to give you or that you need to be in relationship with it right now, right? But it's just believing that it has gifts to give you and that it's generative. It keeps you thinking. It keeps your mind expansive. You know, people will ask us, can you treat anything as sacred? And I'm like, technically, but like, to be dramatic about it, right? Like, Mayan Kampf isn't going to get you better at loving, Right, like right. it's going to limit the way that you see the world. It's going to make your your world smaller. And so we don't want to do that. We want it to be generative and expansive. I really feel like your book is in conversation, at least it was in my mind, with Susan Cain's Bittersweet. The premise is like, why do we listen to sad songs, basically? Like that's the kickoff. Why do we do that? Why do yeah. we love to listen to songs and music and read art and pay attention to things in the world that, make you cry and are very poignant. And she's really scratching at that and unearthing that and and examining that. And I thought, because, you know, for me as a, a religious person, sacred is easy to define. It's when God is present in that thing. Sure, yeah. Right? And so, but I, listening to you define it, and I thought about how she really does a good job of naming, both of you are like really dancing together. And how do we name this without depending on that? Without just saying, well, God is present in it, and that's Mm -hmm. how we know. Like, which I think that's, to me, they are not in conflict. Yeah, me neither. At all. And so it's also easier for me because I I know when something's poignant, I know when something's sacred, I'm a crier and I cry. It's a very easy, it's a very easy tool. Uh It's a very easy clue. Same way. Like, I. I jokingly told our social media manager once, like, I know it's something's good if I've written it, if it makes me cry. <laughs> so I'm like, well, I get it. I tapped that part of me that's like crying. So that's how I got there. But I think just the the more, I mean, because that's what good art does. But I think it's almost more difficult, honestly, to name while that is good. Not just from a criticism, like not that intellectual pursuit, but like, why why is there feeling here? Why is this important to me? How can I learn from this? And I think you do such a beautiful job of naming that, helping us see it, examining it, because it is so valuable not to just lean into those moments when you feel it, but to really, you know, hold it in your hand and turn it in all those different lights and say, why is still Magnolias important to me? Why does Taylor Swift fill arenas with people just with a the passion the passion of the sun, right? Why does Jane Austen and, and Charlotte Bronte, like, why are they naming something that people are still reading and loving? I mean, I have a real love affair with classic literature anyway for that reason. Like, because I love, if it's do if it's doing that thing mm-hmm. for hun- people for hundreds and hundreds and yeah. hundreds of years, like, I like Harry Potter too, but uh, Jane Eyre has a longer track record um, of, doing, of doing that, that beautiful, poignant, sacred thing for the reader. And part of what I love that you just pointed out, Sarah, is those were all things that have huge communities around them, right? Mm. Part of what makes it easy to treat Harry Potter as sacred, even though J.K. Rowling has revealed herself to be a hateful person who prefers surrounding herself with misinformation about trans folks, is the ubiquity, right? Is the fact that I can talk to I mean, like, one quarter of the globe and say Gryffindor, and they know what I mean, right? Like, that is special. That is really special. In the same way that sports are special, but those tend to be more national, right? Like, there's just something, like, no pun intended, magical about the Harry Potter books. But 
I agree with you that there's something about, right, like Charlotte Bronte. I'm like, wow, she knew me almost 200 years ago. And like, that really does, like, I am an atheist, but I'm like, that's got to feel similar to God's love to imagine that Mm -hmm. there is a woman writing in 1830 being like, you know, women are going to be lonely and need this story and I'm going to, you know, write until my eyes, like, need surgery because I just, I want to tell the story so much. And, you know, I think that Swifties all know, you know, it's about, that's about Taylor, but it's also about the friendship bracelets that you're exchanging mm-hmm. in the aisles. And the right. costumes. Exactly. Yep. It's Dressing about joy. Up, being with your people. Yeah. And so I think that's a huge part of, you know, of sacredness is being in community, being in joy with people. So tell us those three things you outline of what is required for sacred text. So I talk about faith, rigor, and community. And so as I talked about, faith is just believing that the more time you spend with it, the more gifts it'll give you. Community, right, is like, it can start just as the gym buddy theory. Like you're more likely to leave the Taylor Swift concert and think about it in a more complicated way and for longer and more thoughtfully if you're there with someone else who's going to disagree with you, who's going to agree with you, who's going to pump up your good ideas. You know, like it's just going to last longer. And rigor is about, you know, maintaining a long-term relationship with someone or something, a text, because you will map how you are changing against it because you're building a relationship with it, right? And sometimes you don't want to show up at the dinner with, you know, your friend because you're tired, but you go anyway, and you're almost always glad that you, like, mustered the energy and went. And that's also just going to be true about a text you're trying to have a sacred relationship with. The more... The more time you put into it, the more it's going to give back to you. And that's just, that's just a truth. And so that sort of rigor, right? And we know this, right? Like you go to church every Sunday, you go to synagogue every Friday night. Like, you know, I'm Jewish. And so like you end the Torah and you open the Torah, right? Like you just like go back and go back and go back. And that's what makes it sacred. I think that what I've learned from making a podcast is that rigor is freedom over time. Oh my God, yes. You know, Sarah and I recently had a conversation about bonds and interest rates. Uh, And I think when we first started making the show, I would have felt a lot of pressure to come to a policy proposal at the end of that conversation. But the rigor and the community, and I think to an extent, like the faith that I bring to my discussions with Sarah, that they will always be generative, that they will always work on me, that I'll always learn from them. They always have gifts meant that I left that conversation thinking more about humility mm-hmm. and about equity <laughs> and, and you know, these these bigger themes in life that, that don't lead me to, like, well, here's what we should do about the interest rate, but more, here's what I learned from that about who I want to be in the world and how I want to show up in these conversations. So the freedom of doing this consistently even when we don't feel like it, even about topics that we don't want to discuss, has been really revelatory to me. And I have never made a connection between that freedom and sacredness mm-hmm. until we started having this conversation. And I, I love that you that you demonstrate how what feels cons- like constraint is very liberating. Yeah. My mentor, Stephanie Passell, tells a story about, you know, she was a sort of like junior minister And someone said, okay, I think it's time for you to, you know, offer the Eucharist. And she was like, oh, no, 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 I don't feel ready to do that. I still don't know what the Eucharist means. 
And her mentor said to her, well, we don't do it because we know what it means. We do it because we don't know what it means and we're trying to find Mm. out. And like, you know, and then there are whole weeks that you do it and you're not thinking about anything, right? You're just doing it. And then one day it's there for you and it, you Mm. know, God is feeding you for the very first time, right? Like whatever it is. Um, you know, for me, I, we do Shabbat a lot in my house and most weeks, you know, I light the Shabbat candles and I like wave my hands in order to welcome in the Sabbath. And it just like means not, you know, it's just like I do it because my mom did it and her mom did it. And this is what we do on a Friday night when it gets dark out. And then every once in a while, I'm like, no, I am welcoming in 24 hours of rest. Mm. and time with my family. And because my arms are just used to doing it, the moments that I need it, it is just like there for me and the muscle memory of it. And I don't have to go reaching for it, right? I'm not like, oh my God, I'm so tired right now. What do I do? I know what I do. I gather my family on a Friday night. I cook a dinner and I light candles and like I welcome in rest and I know exactly what I do. So yeah, we have to build those tools for ourselves when we're healthy and happy so that they're there for us when it's hard. Well, I'm so glad that you came to spend time with us. I'm so grateful for your work. I think that it will really resonate with lots of people listening to this conversation. So thank you. What you guys create is really a gift. And so I want to thank both of you for your work in general and for having me on. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible. And skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. 
Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. You can find more of Vanessa's work through Not Sorry Productions, where she is the CEO and co-host of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, The Real Question, and Hot and Bothered. She's also the founder of Common Ground Pilgrimages, a travel experience steeped in literature that features brilliant faculty. And of course, we highly recommend her book, Praying with Jane Eyre. Part of what I loved about these two conversations is that they don't have a conclusion. They just add to my thinking, and I hope yours, about all the people we share the world with and the many ways that we're all doing our best here, looking for meaning and purpose and the opportunities to give and receive love. We're thankful to Jessica, Vanessa, and to all of you. We never take your time and attention for granted, and we look forward to continuing this discussion with you through your messages, comments, and emails. We'll be back in your ears on Tuesday to discuss this week's election results and the presidential primary. Until then, have the best weekend available to you. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Maggie Pinton is our Director of Community Engagement. Xander Singh is the composer of our theme music with inspiration from original work by Dante Lima. Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers. Martha Brunitsky. Allie Edwards. Janice Elliott. Sarah Greenup. Julie Haller. Tiffany Hassler. Emily Holliday. Katie Johnson. Katina Zuganellis-Kasling. Barry Kaufman. Molly Kors, Catherine Vollmer, Lori Ladau, Lily McClure, Linda Daniel, Emily Neasley, The Cousins, Tracy Putoff, Sarah Ralph, Jeremy Sequoia, Katie Steigers, Karen True, Annika Uveline, Nick and Elisa Vallelli, Amy Whited, Emily Helen Olson, Lee Shea McDonough, Morgan McHugh, Jen Ross, Sabrina Drago, Becca Dorval, Christina Quartararo. The Adair family. Jeff Davis, Melinda Johnston, Michelle Wood, Nicole Berkless, Paula Bremer, and Tim Miller. The most conflict I have with my husband is that he is someone, the second his head hits the pillow, just out. I just, am. it's it's not his fault. Here's what I need you to understand about what's happening here at Pansy Politics. We have reels. Uh, we've played around with reels like everybody else on Instagram. Yeah. 
one of our most popular reels, and I'm unmaking my bed with my husband, and I roll back our blankets, and what you ultimately see is that we have two twins side by side. It's a split king. Nice. And the caption across the reel is, co-sleeping is a tool of the patriarchy. (laughs) (laughs) And it is one of our most viewed reels because— it's it's real. It that it's is so it real. is shouldered by women. So let me recommend to you a split king, which is life changing, mm. life changing. Someday we will have a guest room, mm. and the other person who's struggling, someone can just go. We'll start in the same room. Yeah, but just like if you need to, you need to go. You know, eject. <laughs> if you need to eject for the night, there's somewhere else to go. I mean, he's we've both like ended up on the couch because we're just like forget the it. other person snoring yep. like it's whatever but he literally the second his head hits That's the i'm tossing and turning i agree like it's not right co-sleeping it's is a toll the patriarchy jessica that could be your <laughs> next column 